The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. It's on page 522 in your pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one. Ecclesiastes 9. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten." Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and before they have no more share in all that is done under, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. (laughs) All the days, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Luann. Good morning. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. I've been looking forward to this passage for a while. I want to draw your attention to a couple things before we we pray. Um, It's such an interesting passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. A lot of it sounds a lot like what we've already been working through uh, as we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes. Look with me if you have a Bible, you can keep it open. If you don't have one, again, keep it out from in front of you or pull it up on your phone, whatever works. Look at what it says in verse three. It's just the juxtaposition of these ideas is fascinating to me. It says, this is an evil in all that is done under the the sun, that the same event happens to all. That event is death. It says, also the hearts of children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead. If we could kind of like sum up Ecclesiastes, that'd be like a theme verse. And uh, it's like not the most encouraging thing. It's like, hey, 
Life is kind of miserable at times. You know, you can't control it. feels kind of chaotic. And then you die. And um, that's Ecclesiastes. And then right after that, in verse 7, it says, Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved of what you do. He enjoys watching you enjoy the gifts that he's given. Right? Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Enjoy food and drink and relationships. You're like, okay, that... That's not what most of Ecclesiastes has felt like. And then you get to verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Like, work hard. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. It's like, work hard. Because once you die, you won't have any more work to do. And this is like the weirdness of Ecclesiastes. It's pulling together these, these ideas and themes that feel like really difficult for us to bring together and integrate in any sort of unified way. And so that's what we're going to explore today. We're going to have to work through what's the relationship between being honest about the misery, the pain, the brokenness and death, and the enjoyment of the gifts and the goodness of God that we see evidenced and manifested around us all the time. Are, are they related? Or are we supposed to go through life experiencing whiplash? We're like, we have misery here, and joy here, and misery here, and we just have to choose which one we're going to look at. Is it possible that you could kind of welcome into the way you approach life a view that integrates both of them and finds meaning and purpose and helpfulness and even joy in all of it? And so we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to see that today. Would you join me as we pray? Um, Jesus, we are grateful that uh, on a morning like this, we are not alone. No, we're not alone. You're with us. Uh, You care about and pay attention to the lives of every single human being in this building. The babies and the kids downstairs, the adults and students uh, in this room and space today. You pay attention to all of our lives with all of the complexities, the pain, the losses, the grief, the sorrow, the disillusionments, the delight, the laughter, the joy, the singing, the love, the intimacy. You're a God who cares about all of it, who understands all of it. And so would you help us even today as we make our way through uh, this chapter and this particular book in your word? Uh, Would you give us clearer eyes to see and to understand what these things speak to us about reality, what it means to live in this life under the sun with both its joys and its sorrows, with its misery and its beauty and goodness. Would you help us to be the kind of people that can live wholehearted lives in the midst of all of it? And would these things point us to to you, Jesus, to know you, to know your goodness, your faithful love, to hope in you, to hope in your gospel, and to hope in your kingdom. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I want to confess something to you all. Um, I, sometimes I feel like a hypocrite whenever I, I preach. There are times when I've preached in a room like this about the unshakable joy that the gospel brings to life. In the midst of all the complexities of life that the gospel brings, unshakable joy, it brings incredible hope, it brings love that stabilizes you. And I can preach that, and there are times where I've preached that kind of message, which is true from God's word. And what I've felt in my heart in those seasons at times is incredible depression and anxiety and fear and shame and disillusionment and hopelessness. There are times when that's what I feel in my life. While I'm looking at the Word of God and it's talking about these beautiful things and this incredible hope, there are times that that's what I, that's what I feel. That's what I'm experiencing in life. There are a lot of times, preaching through a book like Philippians several years ago, which is a whole book of the Bible that's based on this solid, anchored joy that we can have in Christ. That was actually a really dark season for me in my own inner life. That time of my life was a really painful season. And then we come into a series like Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes keeps being, we talked about last, last week, the sort of Debbie Downer of the Bible that keeps taking these really like beautiful things and like poking holes in them and saying, hey, don't hope in these things too much. And it keeps kind of looking at the negative side of all of the beauty and the gifts that God has given. And actually in this season of life, I feel like a ton of joy, a ton of freedom. I feel like surrounded by evidence of God's goodness. In fact, last Sunday, talking about that life is 
uncontrollable. We can't fix everything. We can't solve everything. We can't control everything. So how do you like make it through a life like that? And I went home last Sunday after preaching about those things and went to a house where my, my kids that are in the youth group had a bunch of friends over. We had like 10 or 15 students over to our house and, uh, and they were laughing and watching football in the middle of the Broncos beating the Chiefs. Anybody? All right. Joy. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. Joy in the house of the Lord. Uh, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're watching the game and like during halftime they like lose interest and they go out and it was snowing and they, we have a park by our house and they were like sledding down this hill and they were all just like scrambling together finding like gloves and snow pants that we just have laying around in sleds and they come back into the house and we have a, a fire going in our wood burning stove in our house and my wife had made this hot chocolate and like all my kids and their buddies are like hanging out in the back room warming up by the fire kind of unthawing drinking hot chocolate and I was just tearing up like this is beautiful like this is like a parent's dream like watching my kids have fun with their friends, drinking hot chocolate and by a fire and the Broncos are playing. It was just like it was a beautiful, beautiful moment. And I'm sitting there kind of like thinking about how do, we, how do we talk about these things? How do we come in on a Sunday at times and we talk about really joyful things and what you're feeling is incredible pain? Or we talk about really painful things and what you're feeling is incredible joy? Or if we're like more honest, we, we talk about these things in the Bible and what you're feeling in life is sort of a mixed bag. All of us see really beautiful things all around us. We have really joyful moments, parts of our day or parts of our week that feel like, man, I loved that. That was enjoyable and good. Uh, and all of us have incredibly painful moments where you feel disillusioned, shame, disappointment, depression, anxiety. And so how does a book like Ecclesiastes that's going to focus on the darker side of that spectrum, how does that help us understand joy? How does focusing on the reality that life is a vapor, it is the word we've been using throughout Ecclesiastes, this word hevel, the Hebrew word for vapor, that it's uncontrollable, it's unpredictable, it's ungraspable, it's fleeting, it's enigmatic, it's paradoxical, it's, it's absurd at times. That's what life can feel like. How does embracing life in that kind of a way help us make sense of and understand joy? Because for us, in our own kind of like psychological limitations, we have a really difficult time kind of pulling together these two things into a unified worldview. The joys, the beauty, the goodness, the gifts, the sorrows, the misery, the pain, and the death. We have a really hard time. And so what we tend to do is want to focus on one or the other. And so if you're in a joyful season of life, Ecclesiastes might feel like, man, it's not resonating with you. And we talked about that last week. It's okay. And at the same time, if you're in a really painful season of life, it could feel like when we start talking about joys or we're singing today, this like, God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. You're like, I don't feel that in this season. And is there a way to, to begin to integrate the two? I think a healthy, mature, and wise person is learning to do that. It's a process and a journey. And this chapter of Ecclesiastes is going to help us to do exactly that. And so what I want to do this morning uh, is kind of walk through a few kind of frameworks. We're going to take this stuff in chapter 9 and the framework of chapter 9, some of the details of chapter 9, and we're going to actually connect it to other places in the book as we've gone through it and pull out four observations uh, as we make our way through. And the first one is sort of the main point of the whole thing, and it's simply this, that accepting that life is vapor frees you to enjoy life as a gift. Accepting life as vapor, as a vapor. This is the word that's used over 37 times throughout Ecclesiastes. It's the theme of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. That's vapor of vapors. Everything is vapor, says the preacher. It says that at the beginning, it's his first line in chapter 1, verse 2. It's his final line at the end of his kind of speech in chapter 12, verse 8. It's, it's the framework, and it shows up over and over and over again that this life under the sun and the way we experience it could be compared to a vapor. And that doesn't mean meaningless, that some translations will say meaningless. It doesn't even necessarily mean vanity, if we even understood what that English word meant. Uh, most of us don't really use that word much. It's vapor. And vapor isn't not real, it's real. Vapor isn't like meaningless, it's, it's vapor. What, what is it about vapor? And it's like the author of Ecclesiastes or this preacher has found a, a metaphor that helps you unpack different aspects. And so we've talked about it. We've talked about it, that, that life is fleeting like a vapor. Like you have that moment with my kids on that Sunday afternoon last week and they're there and before long they're going to be out of the house and that's going to be gone. 
doesn't mean it was meaningless. It just means it was there and then it's gone. Uh, there are times where Ecclesiastes will use the word for vapor to talk about the, the reality that, and it'll do it in this same passage right here. We'll end up saying, I saw that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent. It's, it's not saying that that's fleeting. It's just saying, hey, here's a kind of weird dynamic of life. People can do a really cool thing and things go really poorly. People can do really horrible things and things go really well. It's not that that's fleeting. It's just that it's unpredictable and tough to get your mind around, like vapor, like vapor. Life is vapor. It's paradoxical. It's confusing. It's fleeting. It's hard to grasp. And, and how, does it, how does embracing that reality bring us to actually understand it in a deeper, maybe richer, maybe even more healthy experience of real and true joy? So I'm going to focus this morning on the joy side of this equation. But we're going to talk about that not kind of as its own thing, kind of giving you a like, hey, last week we talked about pain, this week joy, next week we're back to death, buckle up. Um, we're, we're, going to, we're going to try and pull them together. And, and by doing that, again, to see that accepting that life is vapor frees you to enjoy life as a gift. All throughout Ecclesiastes, uh, this phrase uh, has, has shown up a few different times, really six different times. It says, go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. It says, for God, in this context, it says, for God has already approved of what you do. It's, it's this idea of God delights in what you're doing. He delights in your enjoyment of his gifts. And that might feel like out of place in Ecclesiastes, but if you've been paying attention, it's been there several times. Uh, several times. It's like Kohelet, or the preacher of Ecclesiastes, sort of makes a, a case about something about the vapor-like nature of life, and he kind of mounts that case up, and he culminates it, and as soon as he gets to this breaking point, he'll say, so go eat bread, drink wine with a merry heart, enjoy the life you've been given. It's a gift, and, and, it's, and it's something that's been there again and again. It shows up in chapter 2, uh, verse 24 and 25. I'm just going to, I want to, yeah, actually to see it, even if you go back to Ecclesiastes in your own journey throughout your life. I want you to see the kind of way this shows up again and again and again. Chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. He's just talked about, hey, when you're chasing pleasure in life, it won't give you what you're looking for. It will all fade away. It's all vanity. Then verse 24. So there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or drink or have enjoyment. Chapter 2 shows up again. Chapter 3, after the seasons passage, there's a season for everything. We can't figure out where life came from, we don't know where it's going. There's good stuff, there's bad stuff. We can't sort through it all. And so, verse 12 says this So I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to humanity. It's chapter 3. shows up again in chapter 5 in a really powerful way. Chapter 5, another painful passage taking you into incredible toil, things that in chapter 5 we explore the monsters that are lurking in all the shadows of life, all the pain, all those dark corners of life that are ready to come out and suck you in and bring pain and evil and difficulty into your life. That's real. And in the middle of that world, he says, verse 18, behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyments in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Shows up again in chapter 8, what we looked at last week, right in the middle. Another powerful moment where he's exploring incredible difficulties that we can't fix everything in the world. There's injustice and pain and problems and unpredictability and things we can't control, outcomes that we have to surrender in the midst of all of it. He says this in verse 15, and I commend a joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and to drink and to be joyful for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And then here we are again in chapter 9. It does it again and again in chapter 11. It's all over. It's all over. And you're like, why haven't we been paying attention to those verses for the past nine weeks? It's a good question. We've been, we've been storing up. Uh, we've been mentioning it. 
quickly, I'll mention it, when storing up for, for this moment, because I want to explore it with a little more depth. In this passage, it gives us a little more depth to it and kind of explore some of the, the broader themes. But you'll see it in the first part of this passage as well. And, and I'm not going to spend too much time, but the first section is essentially saying life is a mixed bag. There are things in life that you love, and there are things in life that you will hate. And you won't be able to figure it out. You can't control how much of the parts of life you love and how much of the parts of life feel grievous and painful. You can't figure that out. You can't slice that your own way. It's going to happen, and it's kind of beyond your ability to control. Things you love, things you hate. It has this idea that there's evil in the heart of humanity, and really the idea in this context is that there's misery and there's like chaoticness. There's like a misery and a chaotic experience to life, and then we all die. And so it kind of sums up this whole thing with a really incredible uh, little parable, uh, a little proverb. He says this, uh, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. It says, I think, interestingly, it says, but he who is joined, verse 4, with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Get it? You're like, this is the weirdest thing. So here's our, I feel like this is like an inspirational poster. You could, I made this, and I, I surrender the rights. And so if you want it, you could put this up. I'm going to put that up in my house. A living dog is better than a dead lion. It's going to be a new sort of like mantra for our family. What do we say, McQuins? A living dog is better than a dead lion. That's like the kind of thing I would totally do. And, uh, and so my kids already think I'm weird. This would fit. This would fit. So you can put that on an inspirational poster. Um, the, the, yeah, the idea is uh, life is uncontrollable. It's a mixed bag. And then you die. All right, that's like more or less what we've been saying for the past nine weeks. And then it says, so go eat your bread of the joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved of or God enjoys what you do. And he starts unpacking these experiences of joy. And so what we want to understand is that these aren't kind of like, uh, hey, life is kind of crappy at times. So eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die, even though that's pretty much exactly what he's saying. But it's not like, hey, life is hard, so just like, don't worry about it, find some joy, figure it out. There's a relationship between the two, and he sees that, that by accepting that life is a vapor, it actually frees you to enjoy life as a gift. And I want to focus on this word freeze. It frees you. It liberates you. It, it allows you to actually explore and experience the gifts of God that exist in creation for what they were meant to be. That it, it kind of gives you the freedom to live in a life where there are beautiful moments, not just like hot chocolate on a Sunday afternoon, but there's a happy hour with friends on a Thursday. There's a powder day in Vail and Blue Sky Basin. There's an early morning coffee or a walk with your dog. There's an anniversary trip with your spouse or the joy that comes in a new relationship that seems to be headed in the right direction. There's the new album released by your favorite artist. There's a Sunday morning where we're singing these beautiful songs and gathering together with the people of God. There's a small group evening where you're having meaningful and rich conversations. There's a lunch meeting with a, with a longtime friend. We're just talking and catching up and you feel known and seen and valued. There's a concert at Red Rocks. There's hanging out with your buddies after school, going to a friend's house or a high school football game or a basketball game. There's meeting your first grandchild or watching your child take their first steps there's a weekend getaway. There's a late night glass of wine with a good book by yourself. The world is full of these things. It's full of them. And they're all around you every day. There's a Sunday afternoon where it's going to be 74 in Denver. A week after last week, most of you weren't here because it was snowing. Six inches. That's awesome. That's awesome. And no shame on not being here. That was awesome. Snow and then 74, Denver's awesome. There's so many beautiful things. You can go for a walk down Clear Creek Canyon on the paved trails. You can get off the trails. You can fly fish in Clear Creek or the Poudre River. There's so many beautiful things all around us. How do you make sense of those and how do you enjoy those? Well, you can begin to enjoy them when you accept that they are vapor. Not that they're not worthy of enjoying, but when you enjoy them for what they are, when you begin to start trying to squeeze out of the gifts 
that God has given us more than they were intended to give, when you feel like you need to cling to them with like white-knuckled grip to hold on to them as long as you possibly can, that will lead to anxiety and pain. You'll be asking them to give you something that they were never designed to give. When, when you take that moment in the, in the back room of my house watching the kids drink their hot chocolate around the fire, and if I just try to like protect that and make that happen over and over and over, the kind of anxiety I'll feel or the kind of nostalgia I'll feel, kind of like, oh man, I just, those were the good old days when our kids were in the house drinking hot chocolate. What does it look like to enjoy that as a gift, but to enjoy it as a gift that is vapor? It is here, what a gift. Uh, I was able this summer with a number of people in this room to play soccer with a group of guys on Friday mornings at Denver Soccer Society. It was an incredible gift. I haven't played soccer with a group of Christian guys like that uh, since college days. And uh, every Friday morning, I looked forward to it. Everybody looked forward to it. And Sam and Carrie are moving to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Denver Soccer Society is being closed down. And I just remember, in this book of the Bible, I'm like, what a gift that was. What a gift. Am am I like bummed to not experience that again? Honestly, not. I like made it through without tearing an ACL. And I'm like, (laughs) thank God. Uh, For those that did tear their ACL, God, God be with you and I love you. And I'm sorry. (laughs) But every Friday I'm like, this is fun. It's Hevel because I'm probably going to blow a knee. And, um, but until I do, I'm going to keep doing this. And God spared me. Um, It's a gift. It comes and it goes. That, that season with your kids is a gift. It comes and it goes. That moment with those friends and the richness of the community when you all moved to Denver at the same time and you're like, your friendships were like banging on all cylinders, the chemistry was natural, it was easy, it was fun, and then certain people had kids, other people moved away, the dynamics changed, life got hard, you had different approaches to the politics of 2016 or 2020 or 2024 and your relationships fractured, right? And like, man, what a gift that was, it comes and it goes, it's vapor, it's vapor. And when you embrace that it's vapor, it frees you to enjoy it as a gift, it's a gift. Uh, there's, in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, uh, Life Together, which is just a brilliant uh, kind of treatise on community, uh, he, he talks about that real Christian community begins essentially on the other side of disillusionment. That like friendship and relationships can feel exciting, but you've got what he calls your wish dream or this visionary ideal of what it ought to be. And there are times where it feels like everything's banging on all cylinders and then stuff gets hard. And many of us kind of like peace out on relationships and friendships when it gets hard. And what he says is that the beauty and the richness is on the other side of that. Once you've kind of come to terms with, okay, it's not perfect. We actually have to show each other grace and love. And we have to kind of work through hard things. Now that we know that this is shakable and it's not secure and I couldn't build my ultimate hope on it, now that I know that, I can actually come to friends and friendships and enjoy them for what they are. And the seasons that God gives them, it's a gift. Same thing with marriage. Marriage is beautiful. You have a wedding here last night and a reception here last night. What a gift. For those that experience marriage and the marriage wedding and the honeymoon and the early years, it's incredible. And then, and then you're living life, and it's still beautiful, but you start going through hard things. My wife and I have been married 17 years, and, and we were young and full of just joy and life and vibrancy, and we, and we got married and just had a, a sweet season. And as we got married, kind of went into a hard season, moving away from home to Virginia for the first time, then Chicago, and things are just difficult. We're working through our own insecurities and fears and our own immaturity, and they're clashing against each other, and we've hurt each other, and we've had pain. We had patterns and dynamics that were dysfunctional. They had to get counseling and work through those things. And, and 17 years later, marriage is as rich as it has ever been, but it is very different. I don't expect the same things that I used to expect, but I'm also not thrown off by the things that used to throw me off. You can talk about it with friendship. You can talk about it with marriage. Same thing with kids. We have a 14-year-old, we have an 11-year-old, we have an 8-year-old, and we have a 2-year-old. For our first couple kids, it just felt like every season we were either like so in the weeds that we were like sometimes had a hard time enjoying the beauty of what it was, or at times just like, oh, if we can just get to that next season or that next season. And by the time we got to our third kid, it was just like, just enjoy every moment. Enjoy every moment. Those late nights when they're crying, what a gift. Crawl up in bed, it's fine. You're like, that's bad parenting. I don't care. I don't care. (laughs) When my little two-year-old just wants to crawl in bed, I'm like, bring it, please. Here, I'll stay up all night. It's a gift. It's a gift. It doesn't have to feel like that all the time, but when you embrace that it's vapor, it frees you to enjoy 
it as a gift. It's true in every realm of life. It could be true in your job. If you expect your job to, to make all your bells whistle and all your, your, your kind of inner desires, you expect it to align perfectly with, with exactly who God made you to be with no thorns and thistles and difficulty, then you'll always be looking for what's next and what's next. And there's nothing wrong. There's nothing inherently wrong with looking for a better job. And there are certainly situations that are toxic and unhealthy or there are good opportunities that God has given you to build your career. Wonderful, beautiful. But when you can't enjoy it as a gift at all, when you can't enjoy the moments that are there, you're missing something. When you're always saying, what's next, what's, what, what, what's next, what's next, you're going to miss the beauty and the goodness. And so embracing life as hev- Hevel frees you to enjoy life as a gift. It helps you release control of the things that God has given you. It frees you from the anxiety and the pressure to chase the things that God hasn't given you. It frees you from the anxiety that you have when you're trying to hold on to the things that are there. It frees you from the idolatry that you put to actually expect a marriage or a relationship or a vacation to to give you something that they can't give. They just can't give you ultimate joy. And so when you stop trying to squeeze out or to kind of milk them for all they're worth, then you can enjoy it for what it is. It's a gift. Life is full of beautiful and incredible gifts. It's the first thing I want us to see from this passage. It's just the relationship between the two. Second thing is this, that we can enjoy the blessings of life as evidence of God's goodness and generosity. We can enjoy the blessings as evidence of God's goodness and generosity. This sort of uh, gift terminology has shown up again and again uh, throughout this section. It shows up here. Look at what it says in verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved of, or we said before, God enjoys, he delights in what you're doing. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vapor life. Not vain life. He's not trying to be cynical. He's he's using vapor terminology. All the days of your vapor life that he has given you under the sun because that's your portion in life. And in your toil, at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. The idea is God has given you a life. He's given you a life. And he's given you bread and wine and relationships and friendship and work. And he's given us these things to enjoy them. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the story of God, which we we try to do often because it lays a foundation for how we understand these things. When God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in them and he takes the the chaotic waters and he parts the waters and brings this habitable space, this land out of the waters and he populates the heavens with the stars, these rulers of the night sky and he populates the earth with all these creatures and trees and vegetation and he creates this garden with his boundaries and he puts humanity right in the middle of the garden and he says all this is a gift. Enjoy it. And he said over and over and over as he's created, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's really good. All of these are manifestations of the goodness of God. God created the world to manifest his glory outside of himself that others, other parties and beings might enjoy the goodness of who he is. Everything good is an emanation of the goodness of God. Just like the photons of the sun that hit you and warm you on a sunny day when you're enjoying the warmth of the sun, those are coming from somewhere. They're coming from somewhere. So that hot chocolate in the back room, so that we can get away with your loved ones, so that incredible moment with that baby, so that rich lunch and that with, your, with your longtime friend, these, these are coming from somewhere. It's like rays of sun that are hitting you and warming you up. And they're evidence of God's goodness, the creator of these things, his glory, his kindness, his faithfulness. What would it be like to enjoy these things in life as evidence of and experiences of the goodness of God and to let your eyes chase up that ray of sun and just honor the giver for this incredible gift? That we'd be quick to be people that can honor the giver for this incredible gift. There's a passage in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 that I think is, is very connected to this passage, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, says this, and I, uh, I, think we have, I think we can have it on the screen. 
says this, command those who are rich in this present in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. It's vapor. He's just saying it's vapor. Paul's saying it. It's vapor. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He's the giver. Saying, hey, hope in the giver, not in the gifts. The gifts are temporal. They're transient. They're unstable. They're uncertain. Don't put your hope in the gift. Hope in the giver, who gives you the gift for your enjoyment. So he's saying don't, he's not saying don't enjoy the gift. Just don't hope in the gift. He gave it to you for your joy. And then he says this, command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that it may take hold of the life that is truly life. That these, these are pointing us to something else, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But these gifts are evidence of the goodness of God, and they're pointing us to the life that's truly life, to what we ought to ultimately hope in and put our hope and trust in. And so what does it look like to be people who can start cultivating joy? Cultivating joy by practicing gratitude. Like even today, we start listing the joys in life. Think about what God has given you. Think about what he's given you now, what you hoped, not what you hope to get later, not what you used to have in the past, but what he's given you now. And thank God for that. That we'd be quick to thank God, to rejoice in who he is. One of the chief sins of humanity in this epic kind of exposition of the brokenness of human beings, our sinfulness, and that we deserve the wrath of God. Paul in Romans chapter one says one of the chief things is that we did not honor God and we did not give thanks to him. We saw this creation. We saw the beauty. We saw the goodness. And we tried to suck out all the goodness we could for our own joy without giving thanks to the creator of the goodness. We push him out and take creation on our own terms. This is the fundamental sin of humanity from the very beginning. From the very beginning. And we all tend to do it. What would it be like to, to turn or the Bible where there's to repent of that, to actually grow as a person of gratitude Enjoy. It's one of the things we try to do every Sabbath for our family. For our family, we practice Sabbath from Friday evening to Saturday evening. And we talk about the four things we're doing on Sabbath. We're stopping, we're resting, we're delighting, and we're doing it all as worship. And we'll talk about what are we going to do to delight and what does it mean to do our delight as worship. It doesn't mean you have to like drink the glass of orange juice and like sing a worship song afterwards. It's just like what a, what a gift. Pancakes and orange juice on a Saturday morning, what a gift. Thank you, Jesus. This is beautiful. We're grateful. We're grateful. But they ought to draw our attention up to the giver and be evidence of the giver. And, and because they're evidence of the giver, we can actually take the various gifts and hold them more loosely and enjoy them for what they are intended to be. Third observation here, and this is where we're kind of getting to some of the specifics of this section, is to enjoy the blessings of life as foretastes of the, life, of the life to come. Enjoy the blessings of life as foretastes of the life to come. It's interesting to me in this passage, all, all the images here are essentially images that would, would describe a wedding experience. It says, go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God enjoys or delights in what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. The image of white garments, cleanliness, wine, and bread, and this feast of, of kinds is the images in the, in the food and the drink uh, of a wedding feast and the clothing of a wedding feast. And it's already beginning to kind of give this picture uh, in this passage of something that would help the people of Israel understand a dynamic of their relationship with God. And so there's a true call to actually delight in the gifts that God has given. Food, drink, friendship, activity, work, purpose, incredible gifts. Enjoy them. But they're also given as a foretaste of where the whole world is headed. It's interesting when you look at the ministry of Jesus, he comes into this world and he says that he came that we might have joy to the full. Jesus was the most joyful human being who ever lived. And his joy wasn't different or separate from sorrow. He was sorrowful and always rejoicing. That's why the Apostle Paul could talk about the same kinds of things. That's why his disciples would. So, so Jesus in his life has all this joy. And it's interesting, his first miracle is the wedding feast at Cana. It's not healing a person that's struggling with some incredible pain or grievance. It's not uh, 
providing kind of food for, for people that are facing incredible destitution. It's at a wedding party, and he makes more and better wine. Like, that's what he's doing at the wedding party. It's his first miracle, more and better wine for a wedding party. Is that just because he's like a partier that wants to, like, spice up the party a little bit? It's like, well, that too, it seems like. It seems like he is, because he just was like, let's, let's take this thing up a notch. Let's... Uh, Let's do better wine and more of it for this thing that's worthy of celebration. But it's also, and I think most commentators would say, it's also this indication of what he's come to do, that this is the long-awaited groom who's come to rescue his people, the bride, and to bring us into relationship with himself. And he's bringing us into an experience of intimacy and nearness and covenant relationship that is the true thing our hearts long for. In fact, the image of Christ as the groom and the church as the bride is, is there already in the ministry of Jesus, but he says that he, the groom, is going away to prepare a place for his bride, this kind of wedding imagery, that when he comes again, he will be bringing humanity, all who have put their faith and trust in him, entered into covenantal relationship with him, to know him and experience his love and to offer love in return, to, to, to experience that with him. He is preparing for us an experience on this world, a new heavens and a new earth that's compared to a wedding feast, this marriage supper of the Lamb that's a feast with rich drink and abundant food and delight and singing and dancing and joy. He's preparing us for that joy. So every taste of joy we get here and now are given to us as foretastes of that life to come. When you feel the kind of wistful longing for something that's gone behind you, or you feel that kind of insatiable longing for something that's yet ahead of you, and you feel the kind of fractured nature of that, of that thing that you're currently enjoying, and you, and you feel the, the brokenness and the pain, but you, but you long for more and more and more, and you think, I just got to get that again. If I could have that steak dinner one more time, if I could have that drink one more time, if I could go back and get that cocktail one more time, if I could go back to that season of life and reconstitute my kind of like college buddies one more time, if I could go to that season in our marriage one more time, if I could go back to that season with our kids or get to that next season with our kids or have children one more, if I could, if I could, what, what we're beginning to realize is that these gifts are like foretastes of a longing that will not ultimately be satisfied under the sun but they will be ultimately satisfied in Christ and in, his, in the fullness of his kingdom. We're headed there. We're just not there yet. Still, we're in a world that's subjected to futility, Paul says in Romans 8. There's still pain. There's still brokenness. There's still loss. There's still, everything is still like vapor, and it's leading us to hope in something beyond this life. I want to read this uh, lengthy quote from C.S. Lewis. I try to do it annually, at least, um, just hope, hoping we kind of like get it into our memory and our kind of like spiritual muscle memory, because uh, I think it's an incredible passage from his book, uh, Mere Christianity, his chapter on hope. Listen to what he says. We'll have it on the screen, and you can kind of walk through it with me. He says, most people, if they've really learned to look at their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take, so, take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There is something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and the scenery may have been excellent. The chem- and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. And he talks about a couple ways that we tend to deal with that. We kind of stay naive and just keep chasing, or we go foolish and cynical and just shut down our experience of joy and just kill joy. And he offers the Christian way of actually learning to see them as a foretaste of what's to come. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, like ultimately, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that's so, listen to this, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. Don't despise them and don't be unthankful. 
and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after my death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. I would see this as like my own like personal mission statement. This is what I want to be. I want to be a person who like pays attention to the vapor realities of life and the beauty and the goodness of life and let all of them point me to hope in Christ and his goodness and the coming of his kingdom. I want to enjoy every gift for what they are without idolizing those gifts. And I want to be ready to release them and to trust in the reign of God, the goodness of God, and the promises of God and to help other people do the same. But it is a journey. It is hard. It is hard. It's hard not to idolize the gifts. It's hard not to grasp them too tightly. It's not hard not to feel anxiety and fear. It's hard. So the last thing I want us to see in this passage is maybe one of the hardest things, but I want us to see it again. It's what we've been seeing throughout Ecclesiastes, but see it in relationship to the enjoyment of the gifts. And it's this. Accept the challenges of life as a reminder that life under the sun is broken and we need a savior. We need a savior. He says right there at the very end of verse 10, whatever your hand finds you to do, do it with your might. Like, go get it. Because there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you're going. He kind of sinks right back into the Debbie Downer state. In the rest of the chapter, he's going to say, tell you some stories. Hey, people do this and people do this. People do good things and bad things. And you don't know how it's all going to shake out. It's unpredictable. I once saw a poor man who like rescued a kingdom that was being expressed by a powerful king. And that man was wise and commendable. And I think that's a better way to go. Be wise. Be righteous. It's a better way to live. And in the end, he died and he was forgotten. And so what do we do? And we have to remind ourselves that Ecclesiastes is laying a foundation. It's pointing us. It's, it's, it's a... It's a word in the midst of a story that's pointing us to our need for a savior, for a savior, that we live in a world that's full of challenges and and challenges highlight the futility of the created things and protect us from idolizing things that were never meant to give us life. The challenges erode our self-reliance, our self-dependence and build in us humility and and a dependence on God as savior, God as deliverer. If you're living a life where you need a savior, you are living with eyes open. If you think right now that you don't need a savior, then you are not yet seeing reality as it is. This world, my soul, my life, my family, our church, this city, this nation, this world needs a savior. And that's what challenges do. Challenges also refine our faith in Jesus and teach us to long for the coming of his kingdom. They build faith in Jesus. Paul says it, or Peter says it in 1 Peter. He talks about rejoicing in the future salvation that's to come. He says this in 1 Peter 6, verse, or uh, 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. This is so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What what Peter's saying is when we face the difficulties of this life, it reminds us that we need a savior, one who would see us in that pain, who would see the futility, and who entered into this world with compassion, who suffered alongside us. We have a God who bleeds We have a God who weeps. We have a God who has faced destitution and poverty. We have a God who sympathizes. We have a God who can draw near to us in all of that pain. And he entered into that pain not just to be a friend with us on the journey, but to redeem us from it by laying down his life on the cross, by paying the penalty for our sin that brought the brokenness and the pain and the death into this world in the first place, by rising again on the third day to give hope that he has the ability and the power to restore and to redeem everything that's been broken, even death itself, and to believe that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. He will make all things new. He will wipe away every tear from every eye, and every experience of joy in this life will be seen as a foretaste of that, of that life that he's bringing. 
of the life to come. In every experience of pain and loss, he will somehow, in some way, with his resurrection power, redeem it in such a way that would make this affliction feel light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that he has prepared for us. This is what it means to live life under the sun, enjoying the gifts and enjoying life as it is, as a vapor that points us to Jesus. Would you pray with me that God would help us to believe it? Jesus, we need you now. Would you pour out your spirit on us that we'd see your goodness all around us and that our eyes would run up those rays of sun to see your goodness and your nearness but also that the challenges of life wouldn't lead us towards despair, but would teach us to hope in you, in your love, in your nearness, you as the giver, you as the redeemer, you as the one who has promised to restore all things. Help us to live with joy. You came that we might have life and have it abundantly. You came that we'd have joy to the full. Help us to find that joy in you, in your goodness, in your love, and in your promises, we pray in Christ's name, amen. I want to invite the communion service to go ahead and make your way forward. As we celebrate communion, we're going to be singing about the compassion of God, the nearness of God, God's ability to enter into even our suffering and our grief. And that really is the ultimate source of joy. Even if you're feeling a season of life where everything has been stripped away, where it's hard for you to see the gifts that are around you. There are seasons where that's real. I encourage you even in there to look to Jesus. Uh, there's a God who bleeds. There's a God who weeps. There's a God who pursues you with relentless, steadfast love, and his love is better than life. It's better than life. And so that's what we celebrate every week through communion. We celebrate the love of Christ displayed in his broken body and shed blood. This is for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, we're glad you're here. We want this to be a place where you can explore the claims of Christianity to learn what it means to follow Jesus. We believe that Jesus came to this world, laid down his life on the cross, and rose again on the third day, that you can be reconciled to God and know the life and the joy that only God can give you. You're made to know him. And our hope is that you would believe. If we can help you on your own journey in any way, we'd love to. Um, but for those uh, who are here, I want to invite you all to stand, and we're going to pray together uh, this prayer that we've been praying through Ecclesiastes, and then we'll celebrate communion together. Would you pray this with me? Father in heaven, free us from our exhausting efforts to seek satisfaction under the sun. Help us to trust in your presence and walk in your ways even when we are disoriented by the pains and perplexities of life. Increase our passion to live for Jesus, who alone offers lasting joy and unshakable hope. And let our joy and hope in Christ shine like light in the darkness, such that others will be drawn to your saving love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.